All right, we're going to continue our study of the book of John. We're in the 14th chapter. This is our next to last sermon. We're going to start at verse 15, and I'm not going to read through 31. We'll let Nathan read the whole thing next week. He's going to do the second part of this. I'm going to read 15 through 24. Verses 15 through 24 can be found on page 901 of those blue pew Bibles that you have. Jesus is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it focuses our attention. Father, we confess to you that even though your psalm says that we should not fear though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we confess to you that there are many things that lead us to fear. And we confess to you that this has been a week that has been fearful. Father, we confess to you that it is fearful when we see violence erupt in our communities. Father, we confess that when we see the violence like the shooting in Uvalde, we throw our hands up and we say, Lord Jesus, how long? When will you come? What would you have us do? Father, we pray for the families, many of whom it is most likely have worshipped you even this morning. Father, would you do as the songs that we have sung, do not leave them alone. Father, we remember those who are caught in the war in Ukraine. Father, we remember Christians on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side who will have the hope of speaking truth in the midst of sorrow that for us, as we walk the streets in our neighborhoods, is unimaginable. 
Father, please do not leave them alone. Father, we come to you with the crisis of the sexual abuse scandal in your church. On the front page of the papers. And Father, we grieve that the same sin that exists outside of your world is found inside your church. Father, we praise you that you are committed to bringing things to light and exposing evil. And for that, we are grateful. But Father, we know that for every name, there are victims. And Father, we pray, as we have already sung, do not leave them alone. Father, if it were not for the fact that you sent your Son to enter into our suffering, our suffering would absolutely undo us. And so, Father, we pray for our children and for those of us who experience fear even as we send our children off to school and into this world that you would do as we have already prayed. Do not leave them alone. Father, we praise you for Yosef. We praise you for the calling that you have placed on his life. We praise you that you have opened wide the door and you have led him thus far. And as he goes to Thailand and as he looks for community and as he finds church and believers with whom to worship and as he worships you in yet another language, would you meet him there and would you remind him that those whom you have called, you have promised to equip and would you do for Yosef as we have already sung, Father, do not leave him alone. Father, finally, on this day when we remember the women and the men who have sacrificed their lives so that we would live in freedom, so that your gospel would be proclaimed, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is our hope of salvation. Father, we praise you for the country that you have given us to live in. And Father, we pray for those who mourn the loss of loved ones in wars around the world today. Would you make yourself known to them and would you not leave them alone? Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this passage it is so obvious that you are aware of the hearts of those who hear you. And Lord Jesus, would you make us aware that you know our hearts and would we, every woman and man here, hear the promise that you give that you will not leave us alone, but that you will come to us and make yourself known to us. Father, we thank you and praise you. And it's in the name of your Son whom we pray. Amen.
All right, listen, we've got two more sermons from this uh, Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. If you are saying, wait a minute, I want to hear how this thing ends, you've got to tune in, come back next year, all that great stuff, be praying for us as we plan the schedule. But these last two sermons end with the question that is central to the book of John. And maybe you don't think so, but I hope I can explain to you how that's the case. And then next Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday, right there, this is the seventh Sunday of Easter. The Sunday that follows the seventh Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. The focus of these verses 25 through 31 are going to be on the Holy Spirit, and it's really exciting. The Holy Spirit's introduced in our verses today, but the question that has the driving force of our verses today is simply this question. What does loving Jesus entail? That's the question that's before us. What does loving Jesus entail? I want to sharpen that question just a little bit for you and me. And I want you to think about it this way for just a minute. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? This is the first time in the Gospel of John that humans' love for Jesus has been talked about. Kind of surprising, isn't it? But this is it. The first time that Jesus speaks about our love of him. The context is the upper room. The context is Jesus' farewell discourse. The context is after the Passover has been celebrated and the Lord's Supper has been instituted. After their feet have been washed by Jesus, their Savior. Jesus sees their pain and their confusion. We have heard it in the comments of Peter who wants to follow Jesus and is told he can't. We have heard it in the comments of Thomas as he says, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? We have heard it as Philip has said, just show us the Father and, and the rest of it. It's enough. Just show us the Father. And now Judas says, how are we supposed to understand what you're doing? In the midst of all of this, Jesus talks about our love for him. Jesus starts it off and he says, if you love me, speaking to his disciples, you will keep my commandments. Chapters 20 and 21 build on this. We're told that the purpose state, statement of the book of John is simply this, that all of this is recorded so that we who read it might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we might have eternal life. That's the purpose of John. I met a guy on the plane this last weekend on my way home or my way down to Charleston, and he said, I never understood Christianity. And I said, this is what you need to do. Go buy a Gospel of John. You can download it on the Internet. It'll take you 43 minutes tops to read. And I gave him my number, and I said, I'll drive up to New Hampshire if you want to talk about it when you're done reading it. But to figure out what it means to know who Jesus is, is to figure out eternal life. Believing and loving are connected. How do we know this? Because this question of do you love me is the question that the gospel ends with, isn't it? Chapter 21, right? How Jesus comes to Peter and Peter is on the beach and Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me? We're going to get there, but not this year, next year. This is the focus of the rest of the book of John. 
as you and I, hearers and witnesses of Jesus, are asked this question, do you love Jesus? What does it mean to love Jesus? Depending on how you look at it, it's got to be a myriad of things, right? But at minimum, what it has to be is that you get your life from Jesus. Remember in John 6 when Jesus says those crazy words? He says, unless you all eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. Remember when he says that? Jesus is essentially saying, unless you get your life from me, there's no other connection that you can have to me. To think that I'm a good person, not good. To think that you can find life apart from me, not good. To think that I can be a friend, as he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Not good. Jesus says, your relationship to me has to be that you depend on me for life. It's more than that, but it has to at least be that. And so the question that's before us is, what does loving Jesus entail? Now, why am I saying it that way? What does loving Jesus entail? Listen, you can read this first verse as easily as I can. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And you read this and you go, well, it sounds pretty conditional to me. If we love Jesus, we then obey his commands. And because we have loved him and obeyed his commands, he sends us the spirit, right? But that sends us all the way back to Job and retributive theology. This idea that we do this for God and then God does this for us. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. If this were conditional, it would read like this. If you love me, then X, right? But this tells us what loving Jesus entails. It tells us what is consequential by necessity, what has to happen in our lives. You should read it like this. Because you love me, X will follow. And so the question is, what does loving Jesus entail? An entailment is what is a consequence of something by necessity. Let me give you an example. This is the only one I could think, well, not the only one. This first one that popped into my mind, and I liked it. When my children, my boys, were in high school, they were caddies on the golf course. And to be a caddy entails at least one thing. you got to carry a really heavy bag. You can't be a caddy if you don't carry a really heavy bag. It is necessary. It's a consequence that is necessary. And that's why we're asking the question, what does loving Jesus entail? What is necessarily consequential to loving Jesus? What has to follow? But the question that begs to be asked is the one that we started with. Do you love Jesus? I want to show you in verses 15 and 17 how this works. On the disciples' part, what is the consequence that is necessary to loving Jesus? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
It will be what naturally happens to you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are those commandments thus far that we've seen? Well, we've seen in chapter 13 at the end in verses 34 and 35, Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to give you a new commandment. The new commandment I'm going to give you is that you ought to love one another. And anybody who would have heard him say that would have been, ha, that's your problem, Jesus. You thought it was a new commandment. It's not a new commandment right there in the Old Testament. How is it a new commandment? Do you remember? Just as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Jesus defines that love of the other, just as I have loved you. At the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus gives two more commands. The very chapter that we're in, believe in God, believe also in me. Whatever it means to obey Jesus' commands has to at least mean those things, right? They're commands. If we love Jesus, it leads to action. I told the folks this morning over, in, uh, over at Parkway Press that with Nathan Glenister out, I feel like as the cat's away, the mice will play and I get to talk about country music. He hates talking about country music. He hates country music. I don't know what's wrong with him. I grew up with Clint Black. And, well, okay, I didn't grow up with Clint Black, but I grew up listening to Clint Black is what I mean to say. And Clint Black talks about the concept of love, doesn't he? Do you remember this song that came, you know, out of the, probably the early 90s, actually? I remember well the day we wed. I can see that picture in my head. I still believe the words we said forever will ring true. Love is certain. Love is kind. Love is yours. And love is mine. But listen to this. But it isn't something that we find. It's something that we do. The song goes on to define love. It says that it isn't something that we have. But it's something that we do. It isn't something that we're in. It's something that we do. It isn't just those words that are said. It's something that we do. It isn't someplace that we fall. It's something that we do. The Apostle Paul will tell the Christians in Galatia, that the entire law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is a bold statement. To be able to unpack how the entirety of the Ten Commandments is fulfilled in that word, as the Apostle Paul says, would take another sermon and a half, and I'm not going to give it to you today. But I want to ask you a question. Do you think the command that we have been given to love our neighbor applies in a polarized culture like the one in which we live? Do you still think it applies to love sacrificially your neighbor, the one who is in need? Or is this the time for the church to build her walls high and strong, secure the windows, and maybe pull back the blinds and say, you can watch, but you go somewhere else to receive? 
or is love action? What is the necessary entailments of loving Jesus on Jesus' part, on the Father's part? Because that's where this passage goes next. On Jesus' part, Jesus says, listen, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice how those who love Jesus, then it's a consequence that is necessary that Jesus ask the Father, and then the Father gives. The Son asks, and the Father gives. The Father will give. Now, there you begin to scratch your head and you go, wait a minute, I've heard this language before. The Father giving. And the bell ought to go off in your head and go, oh yeah, that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The reason that we're asking the question, what does loving Jesus entail, is because we didn't start the process by our love of Jesus. God started the process by his love for a sinful world. As Paul would later say, while we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God, because of his great mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And therefore, the necessary responses continue. That we would love Jesus, that we would obey his commands, and that Jesus would then ask the Father, and the Father would send the Spirit. But it's not just the Spirit, a helper. It's another helper, isn't it? What does that mean? It means Jesus was the first one. He was the first paraclete. He was the first encourager. He was the first one who advocated on our behalf. He was the first one who intervened for us. In fact, this writer John will say in the book of 1 John that Jesus is the one who intercedes for us between us and God. And it's the same word. The interceder, the encourager, the counselor, the helper, the advocate. What does it mean to encourage? To speak courage into. Jesus says that the Father will send the spirit of truth. What is this spirit of truth going to do? Well, we've already been told that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life two weeks ago. We see that the Spirit reveals to us Jesus. And Jesus promises that the Spirit will be with you forever. Jesus actually says in verses 17 that the Spirit's with you now, and soon the Spirit will be in you. So why does Jesus continue to talk? And open it up. Imagine what these disciples are experiencing. They've been told that Jesus is going to leave them. They've been told that they can't go where Jesus is going. They have been told so much that they do not understand. They're confused. They thought they had entered the city on that, that triumphal entry, ready to conquer the kingdom. But now Jesus has told all of this, and they're crestfallen. They hear no more Jesus. How does Jesus respond to them? Verses 18 through 24. Jesus does the work of the encourager. Jesus does the work of the advocate, of the intercessor. And he says to them, as their helper, you will not be left as orphans. 
Jesus says to them, I will come to you. Jesus explains what's about to happen in verse 19. Yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. What is he talking about? Jesus is saying, I'm going to come to you. This doesn't make sense until he's once crucified, dead and buried, then raised from the dead. Does the world see him again after that? He doesn't have another public demonstration of his resurrected body. But his disciples see him and he comes to his disciples and he makes himself known to his own. He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then he says these things to them. Because I live, you also will live. He's saying, be encouraged. As surely as I live, you're going to live. And then he says, in that day, you are going to know that I am in my Father and you are in me. And I am in you. Look, the disciples had to have been scratching their heads. They go, what is he talking about? What is this new relationship that he has? And so Jesus goes back to this consequential necessity of the result of loving him in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Notice he doesn't say you anymore to his disciples. Before he said, if you love me, but now he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He's helping us understand what he says. What does it mean to have his commandments and to keep him? It's not like you have a copy of the Ten Commandments in your pocket. Do any of you have Jewish friends in your, in your neighborhood? Do any of you have Jewish people in your family? Have you ever gone over to their house? What's on the front of their door in that little box that's nailed to their threshold of their door? It's a copy of the Ten Commandments. Jesus isn't saying, if you have a copy of that, and then if you keep them, we're good. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you have my commandments and keep them, if you grasp them with your mind, you will understand them and to keep them and to obey. Jesus has said that you will see me after the resurrection, after the cross. What has been defined ultimately for them that wouldn't have been defined as clearly before? What it means to love, right? What it means to love. Jesus will say to them, greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command, he says. But Jesus is saying to them, you will grasp with your minds the magnitude of obeying my commands. Look, we should stop for just a minute before we end with this next, this next, this next little part. If you do not have a desire to keep Jesus' commands. To love your neighbor as yourself. You and I ought to take pause before we say to Jesus, I love you. We ought to consider the magnitude of what those words mean. Jesus explains what is consequentially necessary from him and from the Father in these next verses. 
Listen to what he says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas is about to say, look, how are you going to make yourself known to us but not to the world? But notice that Judas is the one who introduces the plurality of this language. Jesus is speaking personally here. And this is what you and I need to hear. Jesus says, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Now, because none of us, well, that's not true. Most of us are not Greek speakers. We would miss the idea of what is happening here. But this concept of manifesting himself to us casts the Old Testament scholar straight back to Exodus 33. When Moses, in that time, when the Israelites are going nuts and God threatens not to go into the promised land with him, and Moses goes back up and gets a second copy of the Ten Commandments, and, and he says to God, he says, God, I know that you've said that I've found favor in you. And I know that you have said that you know my name. But would you please manifest yourself to me? He actually says, please manifest your glory to me. And Jesus says here that those who love him and keep his commandments will be loved by my father and loved by me and I will manifest myself to him. Judas goes, look, this doesn't make any sense, Jesus. How is it if you're the Messiah that you're gonna manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus stops Judas. And Jesus says this. Notice that he goes back to anyone, not to you, or you all, but he goes back, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Here, Jesus defines an entirely new relationship that is the result of the Father's love for us. That is the result of the necessary consequence of us loving Jesus that then results in the necessary consequence of us being loved by God and Jesus loving us and them coming to make their abode with us. This is the already and the not yetness of our faith. This is the reality that God comes, as it says in Revelation 21, and behold, his dwelling place is with mankind. This is what Jesus means, singularly speaking of your heart and mine, when he says that the kingdom advances one heart at a time. That the chaos and the disorder and the distortion is supplanted by love and order and righteousness. Do you need this in your heart? Do you need this? Does your life proclaim this?
Listen, this is of small consequence to the disciples unless this reality is experienced by God's people. But Jesus is saying that's exactly what we should experience, is this unity among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He's going to pray about it later on in John 17, but the Apostle Paul picks it up in Ephesians 3, and he says that you would know how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ, and to know it beyond understanding. To know something beyond understanding is to experience it. When he says that we're going to come and dwell with you, the picture of marriage even pales in comparison with this promise. This illustrative promise of being at one with God. And why is any of this possible? Because the action does not start with our loving him, but with God pouring his love out into our hearts. So we end with the same question, do you love Jesus? That's the question that the Apostle Peter is going to be asked by Jesus. And the reason John records it is because all of the readers ought to be wrestling with this. Do I love Jesus? If knowing the Father and knowing the Son means eternal life, shouldn't it be the case that sacrificing the 70 plus years that we have on this life should be nothing for us? Shouldn't that be the case? And yet, and yet, the question asks, do you love Jesus? Look, have you failed in loving Jesus? Raise the hand of your heart. Have you failed in loving Jesus? Guess what? There's good news for you and me. Chapter 21's there. Jesus has found us. Did you hear that in the song? He is the one who found us, the one my heart has longed for. What do you do? Look at the cross, believe, and be restored. What does loving Jesus entail? That we keep his commands. That Jesus and the Father pour out their love on us and that they abide with us. This is the magnitude of what Jesus brings. Let's go to him and let's experience it.